today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, episode number 11, Battle Creek. Last time, we talked about Joseph Bates's first foray into the promised land of Michigan in 1849, which seemed to herald the huge growth spurt from a few hundred believers to a few thousand in just a couple of years. We also talked about the crazy fun house that was the White's House in Rochester, New York, when they moved the printing press of the Review and Herald there in 1852. Seriously, there was like 14 people living with James and Ellen, the average age of this crew being 25. And of course, they were all still poor, and they had a terrible diet. I didn't mention this last time, but Ellen White's son would soon recall Uriah Smith, who was a part of this review team in Rochester, saying that he didn't object to eating beans 365 times in a row, but he hated eating them as part of a regular diet. Well, there's a Uriah Smith joke, or something close to a joke for you. You get the point. We need to talk a little bit more about Rochester before, you guessed it, they all pick up camp and move elsewhere for the 800th time so far. James White did, of course, rent a building in town for the press because there was just no room in his house. But that did nothing to stop what was about to happen. On the bright side, hey, these Sabbath-keeping Adventists were growing leaps and bounds. We talked last time about some of the young preachers that had been recruited, namely J.N. Andrews, Uriah Smith, and J.N. Loughborough. So that really helped the movement grow. The founders had successfully passed on their genes to another generation. Another generation which was, after all, just a few years younger than the Whites, really. But there were growing pains. If you've ever taken a business class, or really, the next best thing, watched Shark Tank, you realize that growth can sometimes be fatal to an organization if they don't handle it well. Needing money to scale up is the reason half of those guys are on Shark Tank asking for money. It's the same story. There's just two of us making cupcakes and 100,000 orders just came in. We don't have enough people to make that many cupcakes, and we don't have the money yet to hire more people. Well, back to our story. The point is that getting so many new members meant that James, Ellen, Uriah, the whole gang living in Rochester, was working some mad hours just to keep their heads above water. James complained in the review that he needed help. All of the books they printed, they had to bind by hand, which meant a needle and thread. J.N. Loughborough used an awl to perforate the spines. Some of the women would sew the binding, and then Uriah Smith used his penknife to trim all of the pages. He'd have blisters on his hands by the time he was done. The long hours, plus the poor diet, plus the cramped living conditions, meant that illness was inevitable. A cholera epidemic almost killed Edson White, Ellen and James's now three-year-old son, and Lumen Maston, the foreman, twice. But this was only the first round. When James's brother Nathaniel and his wife Anna arrived, they brought tuberculosis with them, something that back then was given the super-creepy name of consumption, as in, those guys died of consumption. Neither Anna or Nathaniel were Adventists when they came to Rochester. But before she died, she wrote a letter to James and Nathaniel's parents, and, wouldn't you know it, they began keeping Sabbath. It was her dying wish, 
which is a little cooler than wanting to meet a baseball player, but hey, no judgment. After surviving two bouts of cholera, tuberculosis finally took Lumen Mastin as well, but not before he became a Christian as well. But greater heartbreak was yet to come. A strange situation emerged, where Uriah Smith's sister, Annie, the prolific young poet, had a crush on J. Ann Andrews. We only have a single letter to clue us in to all of this, but it seems that Annie Smith had some sort of problem with the Whites, namely James. For his part, Andrews thought James was too harsh on some of the believers from Paris, Maine, where Andrews was from. This led Andrews to sympathize with Annie Smith and kind of take her under his wing. Annie thought he did this because he loved her, but really it was just out of opposition to James. Keep in mind, kiddos, that you just didn't carelessly flirt with people back then, and while it would be wrong to say that Andrews was trying to lead her on, Ellen White would later tell him that he was injudicious with his attention to her. When Annie realized that Andrews didn't love her, she was heartbroken. Months later, Annie Smith caught tuberculosis and died. Whatever grievance there was between James and Annie seemed gone, because even though James only made $4 a week, you know, when he actually got paid, he gave Annie $75 for treatment. Annie Smith was 27 years old when she died. When little Edson White was on the mend, James and Ellen went on the road again to sell books and reach out to believers. Once again, the rumors ran wild that James White was pocketing some of the money that people sent to the review. I mean, seriously guys, go see where this dude lives. Speaking of where James lives, in 1852 he founded another pillar of Adventism that survives today when he published his first set of Sabbath school lessons. Now, for you listeners who grew up with Sunday school, it's pretty much the same thing, just that it's Sabbath school. Got it? Walk into any Seventh-day Adventist church today, and you'll find a Sabbath school, usually just before church. The story goes that when James was on the road with Ellen, as Edson White was on the mend, he put some paper on his hat as he rode and wrote out some lessons. The first issue of the youth's instructor had four lessons. They weren't in the simple question-and-answer format that we have today. It was pretty much a Bible study, though greatly simplified as he spends time summarizing some Bible stories instead of assuming that his readers know all of it. There was even a handy illustration of the two great commandments Jesus talked about as two branches of a tree, from which the Ten Commandments grew out as smaller branches. And, of course, the first lesson was on the Sabbath. Also, the second lesson was on the Sabbath. This is really some of James's best writing. He's clear, he is easy to follow, he's less concerned with differentiating his movement from those other churches, and he's balanced. God is love is a constant theme through these studies. The idea of Sabbath school wasn't organized yet. Right now, it was just a set of studies, never enough for a whole year, that you could use if you wanted to teach young people. He'd reprint some old studies from Joshua V. Himes on the book of Daniel next year, and then others would pick up the banner and write some studies like Uriah Smith. It would be decades still before Sabbath school was organized into something we might recognize today, but here's where it's born, Rochester, New York. 
And speaking of being born in Rochester, we'd like to officially welcome William C. White into the world. But you can call him Willie. He was James and Ellen's third child, after Henry Nichols and Edson. Willie was born while tuberculosis, consumption, was working on its final victims in Rochester, which is just absolutely terrifying. Willie doesn't know it yet, but he'll survive all that, and someday I have a feeling he's going to make something of his life. We've seen that neither James nor Ellen rhapsodized about family life. They didn't have a romantic spin on things, and I'll remind you that we shouldn't judge them from our modern perch above Mount Disney. So it's probably not surprising that James doesn't mention Willie's birth in his memoirs. Ellen does mention Willie in a positively awesome way. She writes, August 29, 1854, another responsibility was added to our family in the birth of Willie. End quote. I love it. Hilarious. Her next line was a little softer. Quote, he took my mind somewhat from the troubles around me. End quote. And then she goes off about the messenger party, which had just started printing their messenger of truth paper. And if you can remember that from the last episode, good. But Willie, Mama's little bundle of responsibility. You hang in there, little buddy. Ellen White wasn't exaggerating when she said she was happy for a little distraction from the problems they faced. She actually thought James would die soon for all his overworking and feared she'd be left alone to raise three boys. Oh, and by the way, they were about two to three thousand dollars in debt over the review. This was deeply frustrating to Ellen, who saw her husband's sacrifices that went on mostly unrewarded or underappreciated. She wrote, Those were days of sadness. She transferred these fears onto God. Quote, Does God have no care for these things? Does he pass them by unnoticed? End quote. But she would get out of this funk when she realized that God does indeed notice all that they sacrificed and promised to make their life a little bit better. To do that, of course, we've got to get out of Rochester, man. In March 1855, believers in Vermont sent James a check for $492 and asked him to consider moving the press there. The believers in Michigan said, no, we think you should bring it out here. Now, James liked the Michigan idea. He and Ellen had visited Michigan in 1853, 54, and in early 55. The message was clearly moving westward, and having a base closer to the front lines made sense. But doing his due diligence, James visited Vermont in the summer of 1855, but he didn't really seem excited about it. In August, James wrote in the review, Unless the friends of the cause in some more central position shall take their responsibility, it will be proper that the friends and supporters in Vermont should take it. End quote. It's less a notice than a cry for help. Unless someone better comes along and proposes to me, I'm just going to have to marry this guy I don't really want to marry tomorrow. Hint, hint. A couple of weeks later, James admitted as much in a letter. He wanted to move west. But the simple fact was that the Vermont believers were excited, they had the money to do it, and they promised to help more, which was a huge selling point for the overworked James. Finally, our friends in Battle Creek came through, when J.P. Kellogg, Dan Palmer, Cyrenia Smith, and others raised $1,200, take that Vermont, 
to buy land and build a new home for the review. Then they immediately set to work when James told them what kind of building he needed and got it done. James had been rescued from a loveless marriage. It's not that James hated Vermont. It's not the money the Battle Creek believers raised, though that helped. James simply loved the fresh enthusiasm of the believers there. It was the direction the work was taking. It also didn't hurt that the believers in Vermont saw the wisdom of the move as well and signed on. So much was going on out in the frontier that it's possible he felt disconnected from all the action. Why else would James and Ellen travel to Michigan in three consecutive years? Maybe 2,000 people made Battle Creek home, which was named after a completely uninteresting skirmish between a surveyor and two Indians. Its original name was Milton, so Battle Creek was definitely an inspiration. The town had only been around for 25 years, so it was a bit like starting over. Things were cheaper than in New England, and the Indians sometimes came into town to trade, so that's pretty cool. Before the Whites arrived, Battle Creek became the site of another innovation in the Adventist church. J.N. Loughborough tells us that when Adventist preachers went out, they'd usually hold public meetings in some kind of a building. Now, most buildings back then weren't very big, and interested people would have to sit outside. So the windows would be opened, and the preacher would really have to gun it with his voice, and the people outside couldn't see inside very well, and it just really wasn't the best way of doing things. So a suggestion was made to buy some really big tents and just go around preaching to people and by pitching them in a field. Everybody could see everybody. Everybody could hear the person speaking. Well, on that note, the review did give some voice lessons to help preachers uh, because the review was everything you really needed in life. So the first tent was purchased and pitched in Battle Creek in June 1854, and it went swimmingly. Shortly after James, Ellen, and their entourage arrived in Battle Creek, the believers across America convened a general conference there. This meant that delegates from various churches would assemble in one place and have the power to vote about the future of the movement. This was a big step towards organization, and it avoided triggering the fears many had of becoming an institutionalized and inflexible church, which they considered to be wrong. It's just a bunch of people getting together to decide on the future of the movement, right? Joseph Bates chaired the meeting, and this would become the norm, really. Delegates were given a month's notice, and obviously not a lot of people could travel to Battle Creek, so many churches sent letters stating what they preferred to happen on the issues to be discussed. The end result was like Christmas for James White. Uriah Smith was made editor of the Review. While James was knocked down to corresponding editor, which he liked, a publishing committee was set up to handle the business of the review, which James hoped would stop the accusations that he profited on the side. And on top of that, the publishing committee voted to pay James for his personal debts that he had incurred for the review. With the review stuff out of the way, the conference at Battle Creek spent all of Sabbath figuring out when Sabbath actually begins and ends. Bates had long ago made his stand on this issue, saying it would be observed from 6 p.m. on Friday night to 6 p.m. on Saturday night. If you're scratching your head trying to think of a Bible verse that ever mentions 6 o'clock as the start or end of the day, well, you're right to wonder. 
But Bates' reasoning is actually pretty clever. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus tells a parable of a guy who went to hire workers for his vineyard. He hired some at the third hour, the sixth hour, and the ninth hour. He even got a guy at the eleventh hour. The point of the story, of course, is that the guys hired earlier object that the owner paid everyone the same no matter how long they worked. They despised his generosity despite the fact that their wages were still fair. Bates's point was the hours. Obviously, the owner hired people to work during the day, not the night. So the third hour is 9 o'clock, the sixth hour, or the middle, is noon, the ninth hour is 3 o'clock, and thus the eleventh hour is 5 o'clock p.m. And Jesus said in John 11 that there were 12 hours of daylight, so it makes sense that noon would be the middle of this. Therefore, Bates argued, the day officially begins and ends on the sixes. This doesn't mean that Bates ignored clocks or anything like that, but simply that the boundaries of Sabbath should be defined by God, not the clock. J.N. Andrews summarized this issue for us in the review, walking us through both Bates's position and the position that the General Conference came to. The big problem with the six o'clock thing was, Andrews argued, that hours back then would be longer or shorter depending on the time of the year. He also quoted Genesis in saying that days actually began in the evening, as in the evening and the morning were the first day. Likewise, when the Jewish people of Capernaum thought that healing on the Sabbath was wrong, they waited until Saturday evening to bring Jesus their sick. Why? Because Saturday evening was, technically to them, the beginning of Sunday. Besides, You'd never be able to tell when Sabbath begins for thousands of years since they didn't have clocks. It'd be pretty weird if God gets up on Mount Sinai and says, Keep the Sabbath on the seventh day at six o'clock. Actually, you know what? This doesn't apply until y'all invent clocks. Does God use the word y'all? Eh, why not? J. N. Andrews then wrote another column in the review, all of this in the December 4th, 1855 edition, explaining the background to the question of when Sabbath began. He acknowledged that someone out there might ask why in the world it had taken a decade to figure this issue out, and he admitted that no one had really looked into it. Of course, Joseph Bates had. Andrews wrote, It is always duty to correct our errors when we see them, and, however sincerely we have acted in the past, we can no longer act so, if when we see a fault as such, or a mistake, we refuse to acknowledge it. End quote. This has been a core belief of the Sabbatarian Adventist movement ever since, well, October 23rd, 1844. We have to constantly question ourselves and not have too much pride to admit our mistakes. Whereas some churches insisted upon their infallibility as a badge of their authority, this movement would insist upon its fallibility as their badge of authority. It's because we can admit our errors and change our course that you should join us. That doesn't mean they were wishy-washy in their conclusions. Andrews was clear that the conference's decision about Sabbath had nothing to do with the Messenger Party, which apparently had published an article mocking Adventists for their 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. position. And speaking of the Messenger Party and their publication, The Messenger of Truth, they're not quite done being against Ellen White and her visions. You'll recall that this whole thing started in Jackson, Michigan, two years earlier, in 1853, 
when Ellen had a vision to settle a dispute between a woman who two men thought said a bad word. Turns out she only said which, and not any word that might possibly rhyme with that. As a result of Ellen White's rebuke over their self-righteous accusations, they publicly declared that Ellen White was a fraud. The men's names were Case and Russell, which would be a great law firm title, and they went out and started their own paper. On June 20th, 1855, just a few months before the move to Michigan, a man interrupted a meeting that James White and the other leaders were in and distributed some copies of Messenger of Truth. More troubling was the case of Stevenson and Hall. Both men had been converted in Wisconsin by the preaching of J.H. Wagoner. They were present when Case and Russell first broke with Ellen White and eventually decided to go back to Wisconsin when it became clear that the Messenger of Truth had become a rallying point there for a small rebellion against the review. But in confronting the messenger party, they ended up defecting to join it. What did the messenger party want? We don't have too much information on them apart from what is written about them in the review, but it's obvious that they opposed Ellen White as a prophet. He argued that no one could be a prophet anymore, that that gift had stopped being given out after the Bible was written. They thought Sabbatarian Adventists considered Ellen White as a source of authority equal to the Bible. Of course, James was afraid of such an accusation, which is why he didn't publish her visions in the review since 1851. The Messenger Party also seems to have been rather vocal about James enriching himself off the review, which certainly rankled James. So it seems that the Messenger Party saw themselves as the first reform movement for the Sabbatarian Adventists. They were going to correct the movement and get it back on track which meant wresting power away from the Whites. Case and Russell, needless to say, were kicked out of the church for these and other views, and not by James and Ellen, but by the believers in Michigan. And I'm going to put kicked out in air quotes here, because it's not like there's any official means of doing that at this point. The review was the obvious platform for firing back. We heard Andrews's defensiveness about being influenced by the messenger party on the timing of the Sabbath, so we can gather that the Messenger Party was really, really a big nuisance to Adventist leadership. Before this point, Sabbatarian Adventists were this little group criticizing the big denominations over this doctrine and that. And, for the most part, those denominations barely seemed to care. But now there was this little offshoot doing the same thing to them, and the movement wasn't big enough to ignore it. Nevertheless, Ellen White had a vision, and as a result, she counseled the believers to leave the messenger party alone. This was the very last thing I think some of these very skilled debaters probably wanted to do, but Ellen said that they would go away on their own. So, at the General Conference in November 1855, they agreed not to use the review to perpetuate this war. In the end, the messenger party ended up breaking apart. One of the editors of Messenger of Truth was a schoolteacher, and it seems that in a dispute with one of his students, he pulled a gun on the student and may or may not have pulled the trigger, although the gun in that case simply failed to fire. To avoid being lynched by the town for what might have been attempted murder of a child, the man fled to Canada. And in the end, none of the leaders of the Messenger Party could keep it together, 
They all ended up fighting amongst themselves, and by 1858, the paper and the party was over. The flip side, as J.N. Loughborough would later note, is that their opposition caused Sabbatarian Adventists to unite even more. Well, it's a good thing this whole messenger party thing is over with, right? If you're expecting some kind of end-of-episode hook here, where I say something like that and end with, or was the whole thing over after all, uh, then think again. The messenger party is gone. Their members are scattered. Well, they scattered, and then some of them began gathering under a different banner. So we'll deal with that next time, and we'll also find out why Ellen White risked her life to go to Iowa. I mean, Iowa. For now, we'll leave our friends in Battle Creek. James and Ellen built a nice little house there, complete with a big garden and a small fruit orchard. And if nothing was going on, you could find James and Ellen and their three boys having worship each night at 7 o'clock. And you're more than welcome to come over. Well, I mean, you won't find them there now, but their house is still there in Battle Creek in the historic Avenus Village. Go check it out sometime. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus History content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So... If you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>